Well, hey there, my name's Eric Gray, and I'm the Young Adult and Family Minister here at the Regency Church of Christ. I just want to take a minute and say thank you for checking out this message. If you're ever in the Mobile area, we'd love for you to join us on Sundays at 10 a.m. And to find out more information about Regency or to listen to other messages from this series, we'd love for you to check out our website at regencycc.org. And we're praying that this message will help you grow closer to Jesus. Aside from getting married, aside from my children being born, aside from being baptized into Christ and a few other key events, this was a big day in my life because I could not wait to serve on a jury. I had wanted to do it for years. In fact, when we lived in Prattville, we only lived there for two and a half years, and the preacher there got summoned three times. I don't know why they liked him so much, but every time he'd get summoned, I would be thinking, man, I wish I got summoned for jury duty. Now, to give you a little background, when I was in high school, I read every John Grisham novel I could get my hands on. There was a time where I thought I wanted to be a lawyer until I found out how long you have to go to school to be a lawyer, and then I realized I don't want to be a lawyer. But I was always fascinated. I watched Law and Order all the time. I thought I had a pretty good handle on the courtroom. And finally that day, that piece of mail came to, with my name on it, and I knew. Haley texted me a picture of it and said, you're not going to believe this. And I was so excited that day. And the, the day for jury duty finally came. Now, I remember we're gathered there in the main meeting area and they go through the whole spill of if there's a reason why you cannot serve, you can come up here and tell the judge. And if he thinks it's a good reason, I'm like, who would not want to do this? What reason could you possibly come up with? I know some of you are thinking this guy is weird, but I was so excited. And so I sat there on Monday morning for five hours waiting to be put on a jury. And they sent a bunch of people home, and all these people gave their excuses, and I just couldn't wait. And they said, okay, well, if you didn't get picked, come back tomorrow. And I, okay, this is my day. So I brought a book with me. I just knew Tuesday was the day. I was going to be put on some major jury, week or two week long, going to be sequestered, like major, major case here, sat there for four hours Tuesday, nothing. Didn't pick me. And then they said, come back tomorrow. And I thought, oh, goodness, okay, I got one more day. We can do this. And so I go back Wednesday. And I knew today's the day. There's not many of us left. They've got to pick me. And then at lunchtime they said, we don't need the rest of you. You can go home. I was so disappointed. I was very frustrated because I had this this image in my mind. I had these expectations that I was going to hear all of the prosecutors arguments I was going to hear the defense I was going to be in a room we were going to debate and argue for hours upon hours to come up with this person's life and the you know the jury and the the decision that we would give to them and none of that happened and I just left very frustrated thinking wow what a waste of time well last year I got another jury summons and I said how in the world can they call me again after all of that and this time when they had the whole line that went up to tell the judge all the reasons why they couldn't serve I was in the line and I said I can I got school and all this stuff and so I was kind of disappointed but have you ever been frustrated before I know the answer to that question absolutely you've been frustrated and 
That's just one of the small things that's happened in my life that I was frustrated about, something that came to my mind. Maybe some of your frustrations have been a little bit different. Maybe you've been frustrated because things at work haven't been going so good, or maybe you didn't get the job you were hoping for, or you didn't get the promotion you thought that you deserved, or maybe you've been frustrated because your kids haven't been behaving the way that you thought that they should, or maybe you've been frustrated because... Marriage hasn't been going so easy as of late or your health hasn't been what you wanted it to be and it's keeping you from doing some things that you really want to do. Maybe you're frustrated because just as soon as you seem to get caught up with all the bills that have been piling on, something else happens and it just sets you behind again. And it just leads us to constantly getting frustrated. Frustration is something that we all deal with. Every one of us struggles with it, even on a regular basis. So why do we get frustrated? Well, here's why. Frustration is the gap that we experience between what we expect and what we experience. It's that gap between what I expect and what I experienced. So for me, what I expected when I was summoned for jury duty was I expected to be put on a jury and I expected to be part of a major case. And instead, I sat there for 11 to 12 hours just reading, which is fine. I don't mind reading, but just wasting the day as it went along. And what I expected and what I experienced were two totally different things. And it doesn't matter what situation in life you're dealing with. If your expectations and your experiences don't match up, that's where you experience frustration. Well, there's a story in the Bible that I want us to look at tonight, a story in the life of Jacob where Jacob's wife Leah experiences a tremendous amount of frustration. Now, we need to give a, a lot of background on this story. Jacob's one of, he's actually my favorite character aside from Jesus in the Bible because Jacob is one of the most dysfunctional people in all of the Bible and God uses him to build a nation. And if God can work through that guy, I think God can handle my dysfunction in the areas where I come up short. Well, Jacob's name means heel grabber or deceiver. He's by nature selfish. I can totally identify with that as a person who struggles with wanting things to be my way. And he would deceive people to get what he wanted. And maybe you're thinking about a couple of stories where he deceived Esau to get his birthright. Maybe you're thinking about the story where he dis or he, and he deceives Esau and Jacob, or excuse me, Isaac, his father, to get uh, the blessing uh, from Isaac. And so Jacob has now left his hometown. He's living in the area of Padan Aram, and there he is living with his uncle Laban. And it says that he meets this woman named Rachel. Well, let's pick up the text in Genesis chapter 29, starting in verse 16. It says, Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Je was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. This is one of my favorite stories in the Bible because just before this, Jacob has come into the area, <clears throat> and he's standing at a well and over the well is a large rock that covered the mouth of the well. And a bunch of the shepherds would get there and they'd wait for all the shepherds to get there so they could all work together to remove this large rock so that they could water their sheep. Well, Jacob's standing around and he's like, hey, why don't y'all water the sheep? And they're like, well, we're waiting on all the other shepherds to get there so we can remove this large rock. Well, up comes this beautiful girl that he lays his eyes on. And it says that Jacob walks over, grabs the rock and moves it by himself. Now, how in the world does he do that? It's this thing called testosterone. Gentlemen, you've experienced it. You've done all kinds of crazy things to, to impress a woman. Amen? 
Oh, thank you. We got one. Amen. All right. So we got there you go. We got one. We got one man's getting some brownie points tonight. And so here is Jacob just going. He's just he's like, I got this fellas. And he moves and he's probably flexing the whole time. And then he runs up to Rachel, kisses her on the lips and then starts crying. It is the most weird. It is the weirdest meeting, you know, Story, could you imagine 30 years later when they're at a high school reunion and they say, well, how'd you guys meet? Well, he moved the large rock, he kissed me, and then he cried. Like, they probably make Hallmark movies about that or something. I don't know. Well, it tells us about Laban's two daughters. And so Jacob's now come back to Laban's house. And he says, I want to marry your daughter, Rachel. What do I got to do? Well, it tells us that Laban has those two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And the way that it describes them is really interesting. It says, Leah has weak eyes. And Rachel is beautiful in form and appearance. Now, we can take that description about Leah one of two ways. It either means she has bad bad eyesight, or it means she doesn't look good. That's the two ways that we can take this, okay? You can choose whatever interpretation you wish, but based on the way it puts it together, it seems as though the writer, that Moses, is contrasting Leah and Rachel. He's letting us know... Rachel was the looker. Leah needed glasses. Okay. Or, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let's, let's keep going. We're just gonna digress here. Okay. So we got Leah and Rachel, and Jacob works seven years to marry Rachel. And I love what it says. Look at verse 20. It says, "So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed as only a few days for the love he had for." Her. I don't know if Jacob had some input on that verse being in there, if he like sent it down throughout time. Hey, Moses, when you write this later, make sure you include this part. Or maybe he just told her that over and over and over again when she would tell him, I hate you have to work all these years. Oh, sweetheart, it's just a few days, right? Time's flying by when you're in love. And it's one of those verses in the Bible makes just, just makes us go, oh, that is so sweet. Well, you skip down, if we were to read the rest of this story, what winds up happening is he works the seven years and it's time for the wedding. And remember, Jacob is a deceiver. He spent his whole life taking advantage of people. And here Laban takes advantage of him. And on that wedding night, rather than him being with Rachel, Laban pulls the switcheroo and sends Leah into the room. And the next morning, there's a lot of shock. There's a lot of confusion. And then Jacob runs out and goes, what have you done to me? Which is not what you want to hear, you know, the next morning, right? And so anyways, we get a little bit later and he goes back to Laban and he says, all right, that wasn't right. What do I got to do to marry Rachel? And he says, well, you got to work another seven years. So here is 14 years He's going to spend working for this woman. Well, here at the end of verse 30, it says that he loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And he served Laban another seven years. So here we have a situation where Jacob, and this is one of the areas in the Bible that gets kind of tough, because here is a man who has two wives. Now, you may be thinking in your mind, why would God ever allow that? Well, I don't know, but here's what I can tell you. I promise you it is not all great for Jacob, okay? I promise you he's living in his own destruction and he's getting all the punishment that he that he is going to get because over the next several years, he's just going to live in drama and dysfunction and destruction. And God is probably thinking, if you had done it my way, one woman for life, everything would be fine. So as we continue to read through this story, we find that in verse 31, here's what it says about Leah. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel 
was barren. Now remember, Rachel is the one who has Jacob's affection. But Leah is able to provide for Jacob in a way that Rachel cannot. And so she conceives and bears a son and calls his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Can you hear her frustration coming out? That her expectation was, well, I know things aren't perfect, but we're married. He's going to love me. And in her thought process, she thinks, well, if, if I can give him a child, he'll love me. She's frustrated because what she expects and experiences is not the same. Well, then it keeps going. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore another son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he's given me this son also. And she named him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a third son and said, now, this time my husband <clears throat> excuse me, will be attached to me because I've born him three sons. So look at the progression. First son, he's going to love me now. He's got to. Second son, God's heard me. Third son, at least he'll be attached to me. At least he can't just turn his back on me. Do you hear her cry for help? Do you hear her desperation? That she's so frustrated, she's so disappointed in this relationship. She doesn't know what to do. And then it says in verse 35, she conceived again, born bore him another son, and said, This time I will praise the Lord. And she named him Judah. So I don't know what situation you have going on. This is one of the most amazing statements in all the Bible. Here is a woman living in extreme frustration and discouragement and disappointment. She just longs for her husband to accept her and to love her for who she is but he never does. And she thinks that by giving him children will make him love her and then will at least make him attached to her. And she's so frustrated until that fourth son, she names him Judah, which means this time I will praise the Lord. Now, I don't know what frustrations you've been dealing with in your life, whether it's at work, whether it's at home, whether it's with health, whether it's inward, whether it's with other people. We can't control what happened last time. We were frustrated, can't we? And we can't control what happens next time we get frustrated. We can only control what happens this time that we find ourselves frustrated. And so what are we going to do this time? I love her statement. This time I will praise the Lord. She decides that in this situation, in this circumstance, I'm just going to praise the Lord. And it reminds us of this truth that our our situation does not have to improve in order for our gratitude to increase. That in her saying, this time I will praise the Lord, she's saying, this time I will give God thanks. I have a fourth son. I cannot control what Jacob is going to do, but I can control what I'm going to do. I'm going to praise the Lord. I don't know if you've ever thought about what's the difference between joy and happiness. You may agree or disagree with this. I've always viewed happiness as very circumstantial. That if I'm happy today, it's probably because a lot of things went my way. Maybe I woke up and I wasn't running late. I didn't wake up on the wrong side of the bed. The kids weren't fussing. You know, it was a nice morning when they got up. Uh, went to the fridge and there was something to drink. You know, what not a breakfast food. You know, 
got in the car, took the kids to school, no griping and complaining, nobody cut me off, you know, there wasn't any delayed traffic, got to work okay, it's been a good day, get home, have a good night together as a family, it's been a happy day, it's all very circumstantial, because if the opposite happens, if we wake up and I wake up late and wake up grouchy and the kids don't want to get up and we're fussing all the way to school and I open the pantry and we haven't gone grocery shopping this week, so there's nothing to eat. Somebody cuts me off on the way to school and slams on brakes, jumps in front of me and then turns. Isn't that one of the most frustrating things that can happen? And you just get to work and then you have all these things that pile onto your plate and everything happens that was not what you had planned for the day. And then you get home later that night and you're frustrated, so you take your frustration home with you and you say something that you probably shouldn't have. And then all of a sudden now you're fighting between the two of you and you got to battle the homework. You know, come on, kids, let's just get this done. And you lay your head on your pillow by the time you go to bed and you say, well, that was a terrible day. Well, it was all circumstantial, right? You weren't very happy that day. Where had everything gone right, you would have been. Happiness can be circumstantial. Joy is really about an outlook on life that everything can still go wrong, but you can still have joy. That seems to be the difference between joy and happiness. One is circumstantial. The other is more of an outlook. It's a perspective. One looks at the moment right here and now. The other sets above it and says, hey, everything is still okay. Joy is still reigning over my life. Well, there's a, a passage in Philippians chapter 4 that Paul writes for us in talking about this idea of joy and of the circumstances that we deal with. And when we find ourselves frustrated or discouraged, what should we do? Now, before we read Philippians chapter 4, we need to remind ourselves, where is Paul as he writes this letter? You may remember he's in prison. I don't know if you've ever done time. Personally, I haven't. If I was there, I would imagine I would not be the happiest individual on the face of the planet. And that's if I had deserved to go there. But if I got put into prison for doing the right thing, if I got put into prison for preaching in the name of Jesus, I'd probably be frustrated. Thinking, God, why is this happening to me? I did what you called me to do, and now I'm in prison. And not only am I in prison, but I'm chained to a guard. Like, they treat me as one of the worst criminals, and I haven't done anything wrong. You could imagine how someone in that circumstance could be very frustrated. But not Paul. He's got a different outlook on life. In fact, in other places, he says, it's actually great that I'm that I wound up here, because well, I preached to the whole prison guard, and now everybody knows about Jesus. What an outlook on life. Well, here's what he writes in Philippians 4, when you're dealing with frustration, here's three reminders. Philippians chapter 4, the first thing is, be thankful. Look at what he says in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. So in every situation that you're dealing with, every situation that you're frustrated, there is always something to give thanks about. I read a, I read a blog earlier this afternoon about a guy who was talking about frustration. And he said, my family and I, we were going home from a party. It was Saturday night. I was getting ready to preach the next Sunday morning. It was kind of late. We knew we were already getting the kids in bed late. And on our way home, we hit something in the road. And we just worried that it didn't tear up the tire. And so we were only about a mile from the house. So we just hurried to get home. He said, by the time they got home, you could hear the air going out of the tire. And he thought, oh, no, this is not what we need change a tire at this time of night. We got church in the morning. And so he says he hurries up and changes the tire, gets it all done. But then he gets to a point to where he can't get the new tire on. He said it will not go on. And he's just really struggling. And he has to call somebody to come give him a hand. And he's just really frustrated about it. He said later on, he sits down and he thinks about it. He said, you know, there I was in that moment frustrated. 
And I didn't think about all the things that had gone right that night. He said, I got to spend time with my family. I got to hang out with my friends. We had a car to drive. You know, we're going to get up and go to church the next day. He said, we could have been going 50 miles an hour, had a blowout and been in a, a catastrophic car accident. Isn't that a great perspective? Not only after the fact, but in the moment that when we find ourselves frustrated to just stop and think, okay, out of everything that's not going right, what can I give thanks for? In my frustration, where do I need to pause and rejoice and rise above this situation to see what should I give God thanks for? If nothing else, I'm breathing and it's another opportunity to enjoy His presence, His grace, and to bless another individual. But I'm sure that there were many other things that were gifts from God that day. It's about being thankful. Paul says, in everything, give thanks. So be thankful. Here's what H.A. Ironside said. He said, we would worry less if we praised more. Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. Here's what Zig Ziglar said. This one just really cuts to the chase. Be grateful for what you have and stop complaining. It bores everybody else, does you no good, and doesn't solve any problems. Well, that's one way to put it, right? Sometimes when I get frustrated, I just want to let everybody else know that I'm frustrated. Instead, I should let everybody else know what, how thankful I am. So let's be thankful. Here's the second thing that Paul says when you find yourself frustrated and discouraged. He says, be prayerful. Look at what he says in Philippians 4, verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. But in prayer and in supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Sometimes prayer is the last place that we look, that we go, but really it should be our first response. That in that moment that I'm feeling frustrated, I should lift that up to God. God, I'm frustrated. I don't exactly know why, or maybe I do know why, and I know I shouldn't let it get to me like this. Lord, help me to find something to be thankful for. And Lord, I turn this over to you. That's what Paul is saying. Every request that we have, every anxiety that we have, every frustration that we have, we should turn it over to God. Here's another quote that says, prayer, do, prayer does change things. It changes all kinds of things, but the most important thing that prayer changes is us. That when I pray in that moment, I am able to gain that perspective that God is still in control, that He is still loving me and blessing me, and that things are going to be okay. So when I'm frustrated, not only should I be thankful, but I need to be prayerful. And then here's the third thing Paul points out in Philippians 4. Be careful. we got to be careful when we find ourselves frustrated. And here's why. Look at what he says in verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure... Whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Here's why, we, here's why we must be careful, because when we find ourselves frustrated, whatever we have taken in is what's going to come out. So how I deal with my frustration is absolutely going to be affected by what I have allowed into my life and into my heart. And so I must be careful about the things that I'm taking in, whether it be through what I'm watching on TV, what I'm listening to as far as music goes, uh, even the people that I'm hanging out with. If I find myself constantly hanging around complainers, well, I shouldn't be surprised when I find myself complaining about my frustrations. It's what's naturally going to come out. we got to be careful about what we take in because it's what's going to come out, especially in those times that we find ourselves frustrated. And so... We could be feeding our own frustration and discouragement if we aren't careful. And so Paul says, be thankful, be prayerful, be careful. 
when we find ourselves discouraged and frustrated. Now, here he writes this from a Roman prison, which in a few verses he's going to go on to say these words, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Now, he's not saying I can go win a football game. He's not saying I can go be the most successful person on the planet. In fact, what he's actually saying is, I can be content in every situation that God has placed me in, whether it's one that has gone the way I wanted it to or one that has not gone the way I wanted it to. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength because he has learned this idea of being prayerful, thankful, and careful, that he's living it, and therefore he can do all things. So when we find ourselves dealing with frustration, yes, we need to do those things, and we need to remind ourselves that God has given us the ability to do everything that He has called us to, that He has given us the strength to deal with each and every moment. So maybe in that moment that you find yourself frustrated, you just need to speak over that moment and say, I can handle this the right way because God's going to give me the strength. I'm going to turn it over to Him, I'm going to give thanks, and I'm going to be careful about what I'm taking in. Whether you're dealing with somebody else that's frustrated with you or with another situation, even reminding them, hey, God's got this, you got this. You can do it with His help. Just reminding ourselves in that moment that God has given us the strength to handle it.